Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 128, Lincoln and Booth and Boston. Hi, I'm Jake. And I'm Nikki. We're releasing this episode on April 14th, 2019, which means that Abraham Lincoln was shot 154 years ago today. That's why we're talking about the links between the presidential assassination and the city of Boston. President Lincoln, his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, and Boston Corbett, the man who killed Booth, all had transformative experiences in Boston. But before we talk about the Lincoln assassination, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Given the connection to the theater in this week's episode, our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Band in Boston, the Watch and Ward Society's crusade against books, burlesque, and the social evil. In 1878, the New England Society for the Suppression of Vice was founded at a meeting of Boston residents following a speech given by Anthony Comstock. Comstock was the founder of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. He made it his mission to fight the social ills of society. The meeting was attended by more than 400 white, upper-class men who elected a committee of eight of their peers to run the organization. Women, who were excluded from the organization, would be forced to combat social ills through endeavors such as founding settlement houses, running orphanages, and pioneering the concept of social justice. The Society's membership required a minimum contribution of $5, which would be roughly 150 of today's dollars. It held its first annual meeting in Park Street Church in 1879. In 1891, it was renamed the Watch and Ward Society because its members were watching for and warding off evil. At that time, there were four social evils they were watching for. Gambling, liquor, fancy ladies, and obscenity. Over the decades, the society policed the theater so aggressively that many productions were forced to stage watered-down Boston versions. Amazon describes the book as, Band in Boston is the first-ever history of the Watch and Ward Society, once Boston's unofficial moral guardian. An influential watchdog organization bankrolled by society's upper crust, it actively suppressed vices like gambling and prostitution and oversaw the mass censorship of books and plays. A spectacular romp through the Puritan city, here Neil Miller relates the scintillating story of how a powerful band of Brahmin moral crusaders helped make Boston the most straight-laced city in America, forever linked with the infamous catchphrase, Band in Boston. We'll provide a link to the book in this week's show notes, and you can also listen to our episode 40 to learn more about the Watch and Ward Society. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a book talk at the North End branch of the BPL on April 24th. When the Watch and Ward Society went looking for scandalous behavior to ban, they could usually find it in Scully Square. The Old Howard Theater had started out as the headquarters of an apocalyptic group of Millerite Christians who believed that the world would end in October of 1844. When 1844 came and went without a rapture, the building was repurposed for everything from vaudeville to Shakespeare. Among the many thespians to grace the Old Howard stage was the famous Shakespearean actor Junius Brutus Booth, who portrayed Hamlet there, and his much more famous son Edwin Booth, who played Macbeth, Richard III, Hamlet, and other roles on the Howard stage. We'll hear more about the booths in a moment. Before it was bulldozed in the 1960s and replaced by the decidedly blander government center, Scully Square was home to everything from boxing matches to burlesque shows to bordellos. By that time, even the old Howard had gotten down at the elbows. 
Its fate was sealed when Vice Squad detectives snuck a movie camera into the theater one night in 1953 and captured a dancer doing an illegal striptease. Author David Crew will be discussing his book, Always Something Doing, Boston's infamous Scully Square. Here's how the library describes the event. Learn about the square's pre-colonial origins through its heyday as an entertainment mecca to its current incarnation as City Hall Plaza. Visit the Old Howard Theater, Crawford House, and Joe and Nemo's Hot Dog Stand and relive the days when vaudevillians, slapstick comedians, and strip teasers ruled the square. The event is free and open to the public beginning at 6.30 p.m. In a delightful detail, it's marked as not suitable for children and teens. Before we continue with the show, we want to thank everyone who has contributed to our Patreon campaign. We love that podcasts are free to listen to, but that doesn't mean that they're free to produce. Our monthly expenses include our web hosting and security, online audio tools to clean up our recordings, and the service that hosts our podcast feed. If you'd like to help us offset our costs and break even over the long term, please consider supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 per month. You'll get special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels, and you'll help us deliver a high-quality show. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory or hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. In April of 1865, a touring production of Hamlet was playing at the Boston Theater. The title character was played by Edwin Booth, who's considered one of the greatest American actors of the 19th century and perhaps one of the greatest Hamlets of all time. On April 14th, after Horatio gave his goodnight, sweet prince, and the house lights came up, members of the cast retired to the Parker House Hotel for a late dinner. John Thompson would later report that a telegram interrupted the cast party being held in Room 70. We were having a good time, and I suppose it was half-past twelve when Ned Booth rose with a glass of champagne in his hands to give a toast. He was just raising the glass to speak when the door opened and a boy came in with a telegram he handed Booth. He took it and saying, Excuse me a moment. He put down the glass and opened the envelope. As he read, his face turned white and uttering, My God! He sank down with his head on the table and wept. Booth was simply getting a head start on the grieving that would sweep the nation the next morning. President Lincoln had been shot, and he was unlikely to survive. For Edwin Booth, the tragedy was compounded by the news that the assassination had been carried out by his little brother, John Wilkes Booth. The next morning, Henry Jarrett, who owned the Boston Theater, announced that the venue would be closing down until further notice, and the run of Hamlet would be cut short. In a note to Edwin Booth, he wrote, A fearful calamity is upon us. The President of the United States has fallen by the hand of an assassin, and I am shocked to say suspicion points to one nearly related to you as the perpetrator of this horrid deed. In the ensuing days, a cloud of suspicion hung over the Booth family who found themselves investigated and in some cases arrested. Asia Booth Clark and her husband were arrested in Baltimore. Junius Booth Jr. was performing in Cincinnati at the time of the assassination, but he was arrested and taken to the Old Capitol Prison in Washington, D.C. for extensive interrogation. U.S. Marshals searched Edwin's hotel room and belongings, while Boston newspapers published editorials attesting to his loyalty and patriotism. The Marshals found nothing, and Edwin was allowed to leave the city. He returned to his apartment in New York, where mountains of hate mail were waiting, and withdrew from public life. Twelve days after Lincoln's murder, 
John Wilkes Booth was cornered inside a barn on a farm in rural northern Virginia. Union soldiers set the barn on fire, and when Booth didn't come out, one of them shot him through the head. The younger Booth died a few hours later. The martyred president, his assassin, and his avenger all had extensive ties to Boston. The first of this ill-fated trio to make his way to the hub was Abraham Lincoln. When he visited Massachusetts in 1848, there was little chance that an observer would have guessed the lanky country lawyer would one day be elected president. He was a freshman in the U.S. House of Representatives and the only Whig member of Congress from Illinois, known within the party as the Lone Star of Illinois. What nobody knew yet was that he would also be a single-term congressman and wouldn't hold national office again until he was elected president. Lincoln had come to Massachusetts to campaign for Zachary Taylor. Old Rough and Ready was running for president on the Whig ticket, but Massachusetts was proving problematic for him. The state was home to many committed abolitionists. In a few more years, the Fugitive Slave Act would push them to pivot to radicalism. But even as relatively moderate abolitionists, Massachusetts Whigs had some hesitations about Taylor. The candidate had earned fame as a hero of the Mexican-American War, which had opened the possibility of expanding slavery in the new Western territories. Plus, as a wealthy Louisianan, Taylor enslaved over 200 African-Americans. In the meantime, former President Martin Van Buren was running on a third-party ticket as the nominee of the Free Soil Party. His vice presidential pick was a Massachusetts native and both a son and grandson of presidents, Charles Francis Adams. In the Bay State, their staunch anti-slavery platform posed a real threat to the more dominant Whig Party, which was fracturing into cotton wigs and conscious wigs. In this chaotic situation, the Whig Party sent in proxies like Lincoln to shore up support behind their chosen candidate. In a 12-day stay, Lincoln spoke in Worcester, Taunton, New Bedford, Lowell, Chelsea, Cambridge, Dorchester, and Boston. Because he was such a nobody, the text of most of Lincoln's addresses wasn't preserved. None of his Boston speeches were written down, but some of the reactions were. On September 15th, he spoke at the Boston Whig Club, and the next day's Boston Atlas reported, A full and enthusiastic meeting of this club was held last evening at Washingtonian Hall, Brumfield Street. They were addressed by the Honorable Abraham Lincoln of Illinois in a speech of an hour and a half, which, for sound reasoning, cogent argument, and keen satire, we have seldom heard equaled. He defended General Taylor from the charge that he had no principles, by showing conclusively that his avowed and well-known principles were that the people's will should be obeyed, and not frustrated by executive usurpation and the interposition of the veto power. He pointed out the absurdity of men who professed Whig principles supporting Van Buren, with all his locofocoism, while the Whigs were as much opposed to the extension of slavery as were the Van Buren party. His remarks were frequently interrupted by rounds of applause. As soon as he had concluded, the audience gave three cheers for Taylor and Fillmore, and three more for Mr. Lincoln, the Lone Star of Illinois, and then adjourned. It was a glorious gathering. Audiences noted his unusual height and somewhat gawky appearance, and he may have played up his down-home charm to emphasize the contrast between his Western folksiness and the speakers that Boston audiences were used to. 
If you are used to the formal oratory of a speaker like Edward Everett, Abraham Lincoln's plain-spoken addresses were an entirely new phenomenon. On the 16th, he spoke at Richmond Hall in Dorchester Lower Mills, and an observer took note of how differently he presented himself than the other speakers, describing how he kept leaning himself up against the wall and talking in the plainest manner and in the most indifferent tone, yet gradually fixing his footing and getting command of his limbs, loosening his tongue and firing up his thoughts until he had got entire possession of himself and of his audience. On Lincoln's last night in Boston, he was scheduled to speak at a Whig rally. He gave his normal stump speech for Taylor as a warm-up for the headline speaker, former New York Governor William Seward, who would go on to be Lincoln's main rival in the 1860 primary before joining Lincoln's cabinet as Secretary of State. Seward, unlike Lincoln and the other speakers that evening, addressed the issue of slavery head-on, predicting an end to the practice in his own lifetime. Lincoln was deeply influenced by Seward's bold stance. That evening he said, I've been thinking about what you said in your speech. I reckon you are right. We have got to deal with this slavery question and to give more attention to it hereafter than we have been doing. When they met again on the campaign trail in 1860, Lincoln said to Seward, Twelve years ago you told me that this cause would be successful, and ever since I have believed that it would be. The rally that night had originally been planned as an outdoor event in Court Square, but rain forced it inside. The new venue was Tremont Temple, a Baptist church on Tremont Street near the Granary Burying Ground that had a reputation as a hotbed of abolitionism. Before the Free Church Baptist bought the structure five years earlier, it had been the Tremont Theater, the second theater in Boston since 1827. In 1828, a new manager took over the theater, placing a notice in the Boston Traveler on August 29th. Tremont Theater the subscriber, being now in Boston, begs leave respectfully to inform those who may have business with the establishment that in the future, all communications must be left for him at the theater office, where he will be in attendance daily from 10 to 1. J.B. Booth, manager of Tremont Theater. J.B. Booth was Junius Brutus Booth, a distinguished actor of his era and father to three fellow thespians, including John Wilkes Booth. Don't read too much into that Booth coincidence. There's something about the Lincoln and Kennedy assassinations that makes people go a little crazy. The assassinations have been overanalyzed and dissected to pieces. People are desperate to find meaning and connections between and among them. One of the first chain emails I got back in the early 90s when email forwards were a thing supposedly outlined the amazing connections between the Lincoln and Kennedy killings. Luckily, thanks to the magic of the internet, I was able to find a version of that email. Abraham Lincoln was elected to Congress in 1846. John F. Kennedy was elected to Congress in 1946. Abraham Lincoln was elected president in 1860. John F. Kennedy was elected president in 1960. The names Lincoln and Kennedy each contain seven letters. Both presidents were shot on a Friday. Both were shot in the head. (gasps) Lincoln's... (laughs) Lincoln's secretary, Kennedy, warned him not to go to the theater. Kennedy's secretary, Lincoln, warned him not to go to Dallas. Which, by the way, is not true. Lincoln didn't have a secretary named Kennedy. Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson, who succeeded Kennedy, was born in 1908. John Wilkes Booth was born in 1839, which is not true. And Lee Harvey Oswald was born in 1939. 
Both assassins were known by their three names. Both names are comprised of 15 letters. Booth ran from a theater and was caught in a warehouse. Also not true. Oswald ran from a warehouse and was caught in a theater. As the folks over at the website Snopes point out, despite the seemingly impressive surface appearance, several of these entries are either misleading or factually incorrect, and the rest are merely superficial coincidences that fail to touch upon the much more substantial differences and dissimilarities that underlie them. All that's just a way to tell you not to read too much into any coincidences in this story. Junius Booth, the theater owner, was an English immigrant who settled in suburban Maryland outside Washington, D.C. After less than a year in this country, he was an actor in demand, and after just seven years here, he was manager and part owner of the Boston Theater. Of the three Boston children who would become actors, John Wilkes, Edwin, and Junius Jr., only little Junius had been born by the time the elder Junius was working in Boston. While there's no evidence that Junius Jr. came here as a child, it is possible. Later in life, the actor would take the whole family on tour, and there is evidence that his common-law wife, Mary Ann Holmes, took another of their sons to see a Boston doctor during this time, so at least one of the Booth boys was in town. In 1849, Junius Booth the Elder was back in Boston, playing the lead in a touring production of Richard III at the Boston Museum. While Junius was belting out, A horse! My kingdom for a horse! 15-year-old Edwin was making his professional theater debut in the role of Trestle, one of Lady Anne's attendants who doesn't have any lines. Edwin's star rose throughout the 1850s, and when he revisited Boston, it was in the leading role of Sir Giles Overreach in A New Way to Pay Old Debts at the Tremont Theater on April 20th, 1857. Back at the Tremont Theater in 1858, Edwin Booth played Romeo opposite Mary Devlin's Juliet. By 1860, they were married, and Edwin convinced Mary to abandon the rooms she kept at Boston's Parker House Hotel and move with him to Manhattan. However, soon after welcoming their daughter Edwina into the world, the couple came back to Massachusetts in 1862. Mary had contracted consumption, what we call tuberculosis, and she was seeking the best available treatment. They rented a house on Washington Street in Dorchester, near Erasmus Miller, one of the country's foremost consumption specialists. Miller endorsed the healthful country setting Dorchester provided, and Mary was comforted by his treatment, writing, He has inspired me with a great deal of faith. All agree in saying that he is wonderful. Nevertheless, her condition continued to deteriorate. Biographer Eleanor Ruggles wrote, Booth loved Dorchester and the country life. He planned moonlight sleigh rides when Mary should be well enough. Unfortunately, Mary would never again be well enough for that. In January of 1863, she rallied enough to accompany Edwin to the Boston Museum, where a play called The Apostate was shattering box office records. The lead role was played by an up-and-coming actor named John Wilkes Booth, and Mary and Edwin expressed pride in his success. Mary wouldn't be well enough to leave the house again. The next month, Edwin was scheduled to begin a run of performances in New York. He and Mary argued about the engagement, but in the end, they needed the money. Peter Stevens writes, Although Booth blinded himself to Mary's worsening health with such comments as he left her for his run in New York that she was, 
in the bloom of health and hope, her condition steadily declined in February 1863. John Wilkes Booth, on his way from Boston to Philadelphia in mid-month, got off his train in New York and rushed to his brother's apartment to warn him that Mary was ill with a feverish cold. Edwin Booth remained in Manhattan, taking the stage in some sort of denial that his wife would not live. On the evening of February 20th, 1863, Mary grew weaker, and Dr. Miller and a colleague told her that she had but a few hours left. She pleaded with the doctors to keep her alive long enough to see her husband for the last time. Dr. Miller rushed off in the snow to send an urgent telegram, his fourth in the past few days, to New York. The message asked, Why does not Mr. Booth answer? He must come at once. This time, Booth rushed to the train station and dashed off a telegram to Dorchester. It read, Mary, I'm coming. By the time Edwin arrived home the next morning, Mary was dead. John returned to Boston to help his brother make the necessary arrangements, causing Julia Ward Howe to take note of him at Mary's burial at Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge as a young man of remarkable beauty. Perhaps it was during this visit that John Wilkes Booth decided to make Boston his home. Though the idea that the U.S. Civil War pitted brother against brother is a tired cliché, and not all that often true, Edwin and John found themselves supporting opposite sides during the conflict. The brothers grew up in Maryland, a border state that had chosen to remain loyal to the Union, but did not end enslavement. Edwin was a staunch Unionist. John was a supporter of slavery, and he was vocally pro-secession and later pro-Confederate. Before the war, John had mostly toured in the South, while Edwin was dominant in the Northeast, and lesser star Junius Jr. focused on the Midwest. After the war began, this arrangement changed. Despite his political opposition to the Northern cause, John Wilkes Booth shifted his touring schedule to the Northern states. This was partly a matter of convenience, since crossing the lines from federal to secessionist territory was dangerous and difficult, and partly one of finances, because there were so many audiences in the prosperous North hungry to see the actor, while the economy of the South languished. Still, the brothers didn't move in exactly the same circles. Edwin maintained a reputation as a serious dramatist, focusing on Shakespeare and other classical roles. John took on what a critic called fluffier stuff. He liked comedic roles and action scenes. A co-star said, When he fought, it was no stage fight. He told me that he generally slept smothered in steak or oysters to cure his own bruises. With his grace, athleticism, and good looks, his fan base skewed heavily toward women. John Wilkes Booth, however, only had eyes for one of them, Lucy Lambert Hale, daughter of an abolitionist senator from New Hampshire. His competition for her affection was Robert Todd Lincoln, the president's son, and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., both of whom served in the Union Army. Somehow, it was secessionist John Wilkes Booth who won her hand, and they were engaged in early 1865. At the same time, Booth began investing his acting money and amassing a small fortune. Deciding that Boston would be a good place to put down roots, he asked Joseph Simmons, a friend who worked at Boston's Mechanics Bank, to help him with a real estate purchase. For someone who had just come into money, there was only one destination in Boston. The newly filled Back Bay was subdivided into house lots and sold at a steep premium. The most desirable locations were lots facing Com Ave and corner lots, 
and that's what John directed Joe to look for in an April 3, 1863 letter. Dear Joe, Did you or Orlando send me that catalog of Back Bay lands to be sold April 9th? For lots number 5, 6, 7, or 9, any one of them, on the north side of Commonwealth Avenue, I will bid as high as two seventy per foot. Their minimum value is two twenty-five. If you fail to get any one of the above, I will bid on a corner lot, Commonwealth Avenue number 20, as high as three twenty-five per foot. If you are outbid and fail to get any of them, I will bid on any one single lot on the south side of Marlborough Street as high as 20% above its minimum valuation, a corner lot preferred. Attend to this, dear Joe. I don't care about the lots on Marlborough Street. If I buy one of them, it will be on spec. So if you miss Commonwealth Avenue, strike light on the first. Yours truly, J. Wilkes Booth. He ended up buying a handsome lot on Commonwealth Avenue, about a block from the most expensive building lot sold in the Back Bay, site of today's Ames Webster Mansion. Today, John Wilkes Booth's land is located at 115 Com Ave, facing First Baptist Church. The original purchase price was $8,192. It most recently sold for $11.5 million. Unfortunately for J. Wilkes Booth, he lost much of his fortune speculating on oil fields in Pennsylvania, so he never had a chance to build a house on his Comav land. Perhaps that's why he was staying at the Parker House Hotel on July 26, 1864, when he met with a shadowy group of Confederate spies. The authors of the book Come Retribution, The Confederate Secret Service and the Assassination of Lincoln describe the meeting. The gathering at the Parker House has all the earmarks of a conference with an agenda. The inference is that agents of the Confederate apparatus in Canada have a need to discuss something with Booth. Capturing Lincoln? Within a few weeks, Booth was in Baltimore recruiting others for just such a scheme and had closed out his Pennsylvania oil operations. By that time, Booth was probably already an agent for the secessionists, and now he had proven that he was willing to engage in more than just intelligence gathering. Though the plan to kidnap President Lincoln and turn him over to the so-called Confederate government in Richmond was never put into effect, Booth's willingness to act marked him as an exceptional agent. When Lincoln was re-elected, it drove John Wilkes Booth to the brink of madness. Edwin would later write, When I told him I had voted for Lincoln's re-election, he expressed deep regret and declared his belief that Lincoln would be made king of America. This, I believe, drove him beyond the limits of reason. All his theatrical friends speak of John as a poor, crazy boy, and such his family think of him. As the war wound down the next spring, on March 4th, John Wilkes Booth attended Lincoln's second inauguration using a ticket procured by Lucy Hale's politician father. While Lincoln urged the country to act with malice toward none, with charity for all, John was filled with nothing but malice. He adapted his kidnapping plot into an assassination plot. Working with a handful of close confidants, he planned to murder the president, Vice President Andrew Johnson, and Secretary of State William Seward, whose 1848 speech at Booth's father's old theater helped convince Abraham Lincoln to embrace abolitionism. John Wilkes Booth was back in Boston in early April. On the 5th and 6th, he stayed at the Parker House again. Many accounts speculate that he might have met with Edwin, or at least gone to see Edwin's current production, but there's no evidence of that. Instead, the Boston Daily Transcript would say after the Lincoln assassination, 
A man named Borland stated that he saw Booth after he came to Boston and was in company with him at Edwards Shooting Gallery, where Booth practiced pistol firing in various difficult ways, such as between his legs, over his shoulder, and under his arms. The shooting gallery was probably Roland Edwards Pistol Gallery, located at 4 Green Street. When Booth entered Ford's Theater in Washington eight days later, he didn't need any of that fancy trick-shooting experience. He simply pressed his derringer against the back of the president's head and pulled the trigger. The pursuit of Booth and his co-conspirators could fill an entire podcast of its own. And while it's a fascinating story, most of it is not a Boston story. Until the end, that is. On April 26, 1865, the 16th New York Volunteer Infantry surrounded a tobacco barn on a farm about 45 miles south of Washington. When John Wilkes Booth refused to come out, the troops set the barn on fire. At that point, Booth's companion surrendered to the detachment's leader, Lieutenant Edward Doherty. Doherty gave this account of what came next to a magazine in 1890. I heard a shot and thought Booth had shot himself. Throwing open the door, I saw that the straw and hay behind Booth were on fire. He was half turning towards it. He had a crutch, and he held a carbine in his hand. I rushed into the burning barn, followed by my men, and as he was falling, caught him under the arms and pulled him out of the barn. The burning building becoming too hot, I had him carried to the veranda of Garrett's house. Booth received his death shot in this manner. While I was taking Harold out of the barn, one of the detectives went to the rear and pulling out some protruding straw, set fire to it. I had placed Sergeant Corbett at a large crack in the side of the barn, and he, seeing by the igniting hay that Booth was leveling his carbine at either Harold or myself, fired to disable him in the arm. But Booth making a sudden move, the aim aired, and the bullet struck Booth in the back of his head, about an inch below the spot where his shot had entered the head of Mr. Lincoln. Booth asked me by signs to raise his hands. I lifted them up, and he gasped, Useless. Useless. We gave him brandy and water, but he could not swallow it. I sent to Port Royal for a physician who could do nothing when he came, and at seven o'clock, Booth breathed his last. He had on his person a diary, a large bowie knife, two pistols, a compass, and a draft on Canada for 60 pounds. Corbett would later give conflicting accounts of the shooting, in some cases saying that God had commanded him to shoot the assassin unprovoked. In other cases, he would give some version of the statement he made a few hours after the shooting. I aimed at his body. I did not want to kill him. I think he stooped to pick up something just as I fired. That may probably account for his receiving the ball in the head. No matter how it ended, the path that led Sergeant Corbett to that tobacco farm began in Boston. Born in London in 1832, Thomas Corbett's family moved to New York City in the 1840s. As a teenager, Thomas apprenticed as a milliner, a hat maker. He married early, but his wife died while giving birth to their first child, and the child followed quickly. Thomas moved to Boston to start over, and that's when he started to come unglued. He drank excessively, eventually becoming homeless and deranged. Historians are split over the cause, but most think that his chosen profession caused underlying mental problems to spill over. Hatmakers used mercury nitrate to turn fur into felt, which was then used to make hats. The only problem was the fact that mercury has a profound effect on the human nervous system. It causes depression, irritability, memory loss, delirium, and hallucinations. 
The phrase mad as a hatter comes from the reputation milliners had by this time. The most common symptom is a tremor that came to be known as the hatter's shakes. One night, as he was drunkenly walking the streets of Boston, Thomas Corbett encountered a Methodist street preacher. It must have been one heck of a sermon, because Corbett was immediately inspired to give up alcohol for good and dedicate his life to God. He started attending services at the Brumfield and Fulton churches and participated enthusiastically. He grew his hair long in an attempt to imitate Jesus. He began haranguing his co-workers at the hat shop on Washington Street, stopping work to pray and sing hymns any time they swore in his presence. In gratitude, he legally changed his name to Boston Corbett to honor the city where he believed he had been redeemed. Boston Corbett may have been cured of alcoholism, but not the Hatter's shakes. His mental illness only seemed to get worse, and he may have hit rock bottom on July 16, 1858. That night, he was walking home from a prayer meeting when two ladies of the night propositioned him. All the sources say that he was disturbed by the encounter, though they don't say if he was more disturbed by the proposition or his own response to it. He went home and read a passage from the book of Matthew that said, If thy hand or foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye, rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. There be eunuchs, which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. And then he castrated himself with a pair of scissors. After doing the deed, he ate dinner and then went to another prayer meeting before finally going to see a doctor. Boston's erratic behavior continued after he joined the Union Army in 1861. He read aloud from his Bible at odd times and held prayer meetings that weren't allowed under Army regulations. Worst of all, he openly and publicly chastised his superior officers for what he saw as their unchristian behavior. He finally called out a politically connected colonel for swearing and taking the Lord's name in vain and suddenly found himself court-martialed and facing a death sentence for insubordination. Instead of facing a firing squad, Corbett was discharged in August of 1863 and immediately re-enlisted in a different unit, in the 16th New York Infantry. After being captured in a skirmish in Culpeper, Virginia, he spent five months in the notoriously deadly Andersonville prison, requiring extensive medical care for everything from malnutrition to scurvy. The ordeal earned him a promotion to sergeant, and meant that he was in the Washington area when the Army needed units to go after John Wilkes Booth. In a letter in 1887, Corbett claims that in the days before the pursuit, he went to a chapel and offered this prayer, O Lord, lay not innocent blood to our charge, but bring the guilty speedily to punishment. After the shooting, he said, When the assassin lay at my feet, a wounded man, and I saw the bullet had taken effect about an inch back of the ear, and I remembered that Mr. Lincoln was wounded about that part of the head, I said, What a God we serve. I little thought when I offered that prayer a week ago that it would be answered in this way. A month after writing that letter, Corbett was committed to an insane asylum. After the war, he had drifted out of Boston when the hat-making business faltered. 
He went first to Danbury, Connecticut, then to New Jersey, and finally to Kansas. Along the way, he got more religious and more delusional, often pulling out a gun when anyone questioned the circumstances around Booth's death. When he pulled out a pair of pistols in the middle of the Kansas House of Representatives, he was declared insane and locked up. He escaped from the asylum in 1888, and nobody knows what happened to him after that. After leaving the stage in the wake of his brother's shameful actions, Edwin Booth eventually returned to acting. A 2015 article in the Boston Globe explains. Shortly after Edwin ended his exile from acting in January 1866, he purchased the Boston Theater's lease. On September 3, 1866, the tragedian finally set foot on the floorboards he last prowled on the night of the assassination. Before Edwin could perform the title role in Othello, men shouted, applauded, and stamped their feet for nearly two full minutes while ladies waved their handkerchiefs. The sold-out audience's thunderous reaction confirmed the Boston Evening Transcript's report that Edwin still enjoys a popularity greater than any other actor. Even though Boston had grieved so deeply for Lincoln, it did not hold the sins of John Wilkes against his brother. Junius Jr. came to Boston to manage Edwin's theater, the job that his father had once held. And like his brother, Junius Jr. found love with a Boston actress. After marrying Agnes Perry the couple eventually settled down and ran a hotel on the North Shore until the 1890s. Even Edwin's daughter Edwina moved into a townhouse on Charles Street. In 1893, Edwin made his affection for Boston permanent. After a stroke in April, his health slowly declined until he died on June 8th. After a funeral in New York, his casket was brought to Boston. According to his wishes, he was interred at Mount Auburn Cemetery next to Marianne. As Arthur Bloom's biography describes, his burial befitted one of the biggest celebrities of the era. The casket was then taken to Boston, where the mourners proceeded by carriage to Mount Auburn Cemetery. Four to five hundred people crowded around as the short Episcopal service was said. As the coffin was to be lowered into the grave, Edwina prostrated herself upon it, weeping and crying, My father, oh my father. She placed a bunch of violets on her mother's grave, and Ignatius led her away. The spectators pressed around the open grave to get floral mementos. To learn more about Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth, Boston Corbett, and their ties to Boston, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 128. We'll have historic photographs and theater playbills from the Booth family, a link to Boston Corbett's own account of the pursuit and killing of John Wilkes Booth, and a link to the program from the Boston City Council's Memorial Service for President Lincoln. We'll have links to the articles and sources we used in preparing the show as well. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Always Something Doing, Boston's infamous Scully Square, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Google Podcasts and Google Play Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many more apps. 
Stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe, please consider rating and reviewing us. That helps us show up higher in the podcast rankings where people can find us more easily. If you write us a review, drop us a line and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of our appreciation. Or just tell a friend about us. Word of mouth is truly the best way to help new listeners discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next week.